0: Chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is a sixth month for her, who was called childless for nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her.
1: Uh, One more announcement real quick before we really get started, which is that starting next week, we are going to uh, start our annual tradition of going through a four-week sermon series uh, based on Advent. Advent. And for those of you who don't know or maybe weren't with us last year, Advent is a really over a thousand year old tradition where Christians take the four weeks leading up to Christmas to reflect and rejoice on the second coming of Christ. As a matter of fact, that is that is what Advent means. That word is like the coming of. Something is about to arrive. And uh, I, I would summarize Advent as anticipation and preparation. Throughout church history, Christians have taken four weeks of intentionality to anticipate and prepare for Jesus's arrival. And um, I love Christmas. Uh, I love Christmas music. Like, I listen to it year round. I'm one of those weird guys. Like, we, there's always a debate in my house. I try to listen to it at Thanksgiving meal. Uh, Kelly thinks it should be after. The problem with that is that there's no such thing as Thanksgiving music. You know what I mean? So it's like, to me, it fits. And if you disagree with me, you're allowed to be wrong. Um, I love ceremonies. I love decorations. I love Christmas parties. I love Christmas movies, Elf. Uh, Batman returns die hard like they're all they're all happening at my house in the next couple of weeks here's the thing though is I know that I can be guilty of uh falling into the cult cultural trap of becoming like really busy during the holiday season. I can do all the celebratory things and lose sight of. To be cheesy, the the why of Christmas. Um. And so I'll end my season like with a bigger belly and a more empty bank account and exhausted and tired because during the holiday season, everything picks up. We're like moving at lightning speed to get everything done, to make sure our kids experience all of the things, to make sure we make all of the places and buy all of the gifts or whatever it is. We we are rushed, we are stressed and by the end of it all, I don't know about you guys, but like I can be exhausted, which is the opposite, almost entirely the opposite of what Advent is. And that's why I think that the Advent season is really this tremendous ancient gift to this cultural moment, to us living our modern lives. Because Advent invites us to slow down to de accelerate. And even in a season of abundance, Advent invites us to self denial. It reminds us to reflect, repent, and rejoice, not only in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Uh, ultimately, like Advent is this opportunity for us as Christians to live counter-cultural lives, which of course we know we are called to do, not for the sake of being like humbugs towards Christmas. Again, I love all of the things, but rather because the busyness of the season like tears apart our souls. It's just not good for us. And so Advent is this invitation to slow down. So how do we do it here at King's Cross? Starting next week, although this week's sort of a bonus episode, uh, next week we're going to do four, we're going to start our four-week sermon series on hope hope. Peace, joy, and love, uh, which means the last Sunday that we will be doing Advent happens to fall this year on Christmas Eve. Uh, So we are going to bookend it. Today we're going to talk about the Annunciation of the coming Messiah. And then by Christmas Eve Sunday, we will talk about Jesus's birth. Those are kind of going to be our book our bookend sermons in this season. In addition to that, we also want to invite you guys uh, to participate in devotionals at home. So we've picked two books. The first one is called The Light Before Christmas by Marty Mikowski. I think we have possibly, potentially. It's on its way. There it is. So this one on my right, your left, is the one by Marty Mikowski. It's a great book for young families. Right now, it's $13 online. Uh, I say it's a great book for what young families. Kelly and I took the kids through it last year. It's super fun, very readable to them. Uh, and for the busy families that just like can't get it done every night of the week, it's actually 3 devotionals a week. So you can just, you just got to get three done in seven days. And what's cool about this is that it also, they uh, created a Sunday school curriculum. So we're going to take the kids in Sunday school through the curriculum. So if you're doing your devotional at home with the kids, by the time they get here for Sunday, it'll tie into what you're doing at home, which I think is really cool. The other one is by Paul Tripp. Called Come Let Us Adore Him. It's $9. Uh, this one's a daily devotional. It's great for people with older kids, which I realize is pretty much just us. Uh, Ricky's got older kids too, though, so we're not alone. Um, it's also great for just adults. Oh, you guys have older kids. My bad. <laughs> How terrible. And so we got, we've got older kids now. What am I talking about? For the longest time, Maddie was like the only high school kid. Uh, all right. So we've got older kids. Come, let us adore him by Paul Tripp is great. It's great for adults, great for teenage years. Uh, it's a daily devotional and, uh, if you want to participate with that one, that would be great as well. Again, that one's nine dollars online. Uh, so those are ways, I think, practical ways that we can take this this moment in the year to slow down and reflect on the coming messiah. Let's go ahead and pray for the sermon. Heavenly Father, um, man as Serena was reading those passages. Uh, I just was reflecting on how amazing you are, the way that you orchestrate your plan and by your grace decide to use common everyday people that you call us to be a part of your magnificent everlasting kingdom. And so as we read these passages, as we study your word, I pray that the reality that you are at work and that you have sovereignly chose to invite us into what you are doing, would grab a hold of our hearts. Move me out of the way, Lord, and uh, may your Holy Spirit empower this moment to soften our hearts and and see how magnificent you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I said earlier that uh, that the, the two words that come to mind for Advent is anticipation and preparation. And we certainly anticipate and prepare a lot of things. You know, we've got to anticipate and prepare a new school, a new job, getting ready for a vacation. These are all things that we need to go and buy stuff and prepare for. Um, but nothing says anticipate and prepare like having a newborn baby, especially like having your first newborn baby. I mean, like we all know that that parents, what they do when they find out that they're having a baby, especially their first one, they go and they buy the books. They, uh, they study, they start paying attention to other kids to see how you know, they behave, how parents will interact with uh, their behavior mechanics and things of that nature. Your relationship with your parents will start to change. You start to adjust accordingly. Everything really starts to change. You, you start going home and like preparing space for the kid that you're gonna be bringing home. You start looking at cars differently. Like before being a dad, I was just looking at like the horsepower and the zero to 60. And then all of a sudden you're looking at safety ratings. I didn't even know cars had safety ratings, to be honest with you, until having a kid. The point is when you are going to have, especially your first, man, everything changes. The world just looks totally different. Your value systems change. Finding out you're pregnant changes everything. And This moment that we're reading with Mary is this unique thing because not only does she find out in this moment that she's having a baby, she also discovers that the Messiah is coming. And so the idea of anticipating and preparing finds its root here in this moment. And here's the thing about us as Christians is that we live in this space between the here and the not yet. In one sense, Jesus has come 2000 years ago. He's died, he's resurrected and he has ascended and he is building his kingdom. And he said that he's bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, but that kingdom is not fully realized and it won't be fully realized until Jesus' second coming. And so we live in the tension of the space between those two magnificent moments. In other words, we live almost a constant life as anticipating and preparing for the second coming of Christ. And that is why Advent is so valuable to us because God, when he calls us, he calls us to reorder our lives, to repent of our sins. And he does this through gospel renewal, which brings us to our first point. Anticipation demands preparation. Luke 1, verse 28 and 29, here's how it goes. The angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. You know, I bet every single one of us at some point in our lives have desired like this great enunciation from God. To, to like have God reveal himself to us and tell us his magnificent plans for us, right? Like we've all wanted to be asleep in the middle of the night and to wake up and have there been some like cosmic wormhole with an angel popping out and being like, here is what the Lord has decided for you. Or like we've all wanted to, you know, have a near death experience and right before dying, Jesus or God lifts us out of our car and puts us down and is like, here is why I have saved you. Or even smaller things on the precipice of buying a car, buying a home, or deciding to have children. Like, Could God just reveal his economic plans for the next three to five years so that we know how to make this decision? All of us at some point is like, I just, I just want God to like reveal himself in his plan to me. That would just be so easy. The problem is all throughout the scriptures, when God reveals himself to somebody, it's met with fear and trembling. And Mary's situation is no different. The other thing it does too is it, shows them that God's revelation to them is less about them and their plans and more about what God is doing and desires to do through them. And this is Mary's story. I mean, think about Mary's situation. She is a virgin engaged to be married. And think about like the precedence of the moment of that time. This is in the Middle East 2000 years ago. The scriptures don't... um, Don't advocate for this, but the reality is that the cultural precedence towards women 2,000 years ago is that your value and your worth was basically caught up in your ability to be a mom. Like your value and worth as a single woman was in your physical health, your ability to bear children, and whether or not you were a virgin. If one of those three things was not in place, you were of low value, of low commodity 2,000 years ago. That's not how God designed it to be, but that is the cultural precedence 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. So when an angel comes to a little, you know, teenage girl that's engaged to be married, is like, you're pregnant, that's a problem. This is not in Mary's plans. Not only is it a cultural issue, but it's an emotional one. Like, what do we know about women or anybody who are planning for their wedding? We know they're not just making plans for that one day, they're dreaming up the entire future for their lives. They're thinking about like the home they're gonna have and build, the the places they're gonna go, the careers they're gonna have, the children that they will one day have. They're they're dreaming up what the rest of their lives about this relationship is gonna look like. And so when this angel shows up and it's like, hey Mary, God's got big plans for you. At first maybe she's like, oh sweet, you know, like big house, successful career, lots of kids, amazing marriage. And he's like, um, something like that. This is what he says. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And of course, Mary's response is exactly what you would expect from a virgin betrothed woman at such a young age. How can this be since I've had no sexual relations with a man? We have to recognize that this question is not just biological. She's not like, explain to me the science of why I'm pregnant if I've never you know, done anything with a man. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is she's saying, how can this be? I've got plans. I'm married to this amazing man. Like, I'm a virgin. If they find out I'm pregnant, no one's going to believe me. And notice what the angel says. He says, in comforting her, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Nothing will be impossible with God. See, this divine annunciation is so not about Mary's plans It's about how God intends to use Mary in his magnificent story, and it scares her. But the way that he comforts her is by telling her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What he is doing is actually alluding to the Exodus story in the Old Testament, because remember, when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and had them roam through the desert towards the promised land, what did He do to bring them comfort? He revealed himself as a spirit, as a tower. Uh, the scripture call it a pillar of fire and cloud. and this pillar of fire and cloud would be before the people and it would help them travel through the desert and they would travel in the shadow of this pillar of fire and cloud. And so to be in the shadow of the spirit of God in the Old Testament meant that God was with you, that God was taking you somewhere, that God was at work. And so this angel, God, through this angel, is showing Mary, I am going to be with you. These weren't your plans, these are my plans, and my plans are better, and I will be with you through them. What's the point? It is this. When God calls you, when God calls you, he does not call you to be the hero of your own story. He doesn't call you into having your best life now. When he calls you, he calls you to bigger and better. He calls you to participate in the story of redemption and reconciliation that he is doing through you. And so to follow Jesus is to receive a similar revelation from God. To follow Jesus is not to receive some life enhancement tool that just makes marriage better, that just helps us understand how to raise children, that gives us spiritual motivation when things get tough. To follow Jesus is more like finding a treasure buried in the land and then selling everything you have so that you can get that treasure. That's what it looks like to have an enunciation come upon your life. And by letting go of your plans for his plans, what you end up doing is you find yourself a part of the deepest and most truest story there ever was. You find yourself a part of what God is doing. You find yourself a a part of his divine and mysterious story. The biggest story ever told, as one person put it. As one author says it, all great stories come at a cost. And the cost of revelation is that it's going to ask something of us. In any divine enunciation, you receive revelation as a gift. Yet at the same time, you receive notice that all that you had planned is ending. It's all over. Everything will change. Most of all, you. You. which leads us to our second point. Preparation produces a form of transformation. Look again at Mary's response. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Here's the thing, guys. Revelation is truth delivered by God. And as David Foster Wallace once said, the truth will set you free, but not until... It is done with you. Advent has been historically marked as a season of repentance. As a matter of fact, at times in history, it was called a little lint. People would often seek uh, repentance and humility and renewal in the season of Advent. And as a matter of fact, uh, I was I was curious about this reality. But the color purple is often associated with Advent because purple represents both repentance and royalty. Which you might think like, how do those two things correlate? It correlates like this in a phrase, which is, "The King is coming. Get ready. The King is coming." get ready. So when kings would have birthdays, uh, and if they decided to celebrate it in the, you know, in the main city, essentially the entire city would get up for that moment. Like if the if the king was coming to celebrate his birthday in your town, you would clean your home, you would decorate, you would bake your favorite goods. There would be buzz about the city, you would talk to people about the reality, and the truth of the matter is is that you would take an account of your life, because there was a chance that you might interact with the king. And so what does it mean for us to recognize Advent, a season of preparing and transformation? It means this, that we need to remember that the king of kings is coming and that we need to consider all of the ways in which we build little kingdoms for ourselves. We need to recognize that there are spaces in our lives where we are disloyal subjects to the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, We live in a world of false kings. We're always trying to do life our way. We are always seeking self-glory, self-satisfaction. We're always looking to build up our own tiny little kingdoms. But the truth is the King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming. And we need to get ready because when he comes, there will be no other kingdom. There will be no other Lord. There will be no other worship. There will only be his kingdom. Advent reminds us that we cannot prepare for the light of the world while we hide in darkness. And here's the thing, the process of confession and repentance, which I'm inviting, we, the Lord is inviting us into this season of confession and, and repentance. But the thing is, is that confession and repentance is hard. It's uncomfortable because you're bringing the worst part of yourself out into the light and into the open for people to see. And yet it's such a necessary and even beautiful process um I mean it's it's not much different like I I I can specifically remember having a conversation with a friend who had struggled with uh, uh infertility issues and uh by the grace of god she's pregnant and I was kind of like oh you know like how's morning sickness coming along and and she got this little smirk on her face and was like it sucks but it's worth it which is like, she, she had a distinct understanding of what was happening because she anticipated, she waited, she longed for what was to come, right? And so the reality that she was experiencing morning sickness was a reminder of new life, of the new life that was coming to be. In other words, like the morning sickness, the discomfort was a welcomed thing because what was being created was so worth it. And of course, like, you know, morning sickness, man flu. Like, guys, you get it. It's the same thing. Here's the thing, actually. I was thinking about this. And uh, we've never had morning sickness, but you've never had the man flu. So let's just call it even. You know what I mean? That's the only way to go about this argument. Let's move on. (laughs) Listen, confession and repentance... Requires brutal honesty. It requires for us to step out of the darkness and into the light. And in order to do that, we need to be brutally honest. I used to uh be a part of a, a church where the culture was like, Yeah, for sure, dude. Like we always gotta repent, and then like the leaders would come to a place and be like, oh, you know, like, we're we're all repenting of sin, what's up? And they're like, oh, you know, like, I'm the worst of sinners, man. Like, I'm totally depraved, man. Like, God's grace is just, like, the thing that's saving me. And, And you're like, that's not repentance. Like, those are just making theological claims, And the thing is, is that repentance cannot happen with half-truths. The full truth needs to be brought into the light. And the other thing, too, is that you cannot be in the process of repentance when you are so focused on other people's sins. Because at the end of the day, if you're holding the flashlight, you're in the darkness. And that's the reason why, if you think about it, like the reason why God creates conflict in our lives between other people Man, if you are in a place of conflict with somebody, a friend, uh, a family member, someone at work or school, if you're at a place of conflict and all you can see is their failings, of their shortcomings, of their sins, you're missing the opportunity. Better yet, God is giving you that conflict as a gift of repentance for you to see where you have sinned. But if you're too busy talking about and praying about the other person's sin, you miss the opportunity to open that sanctifying gift. Uh, One theologian put it this way. Advent invites us to a vulnerable place a place of individual and communal confession where we honestly name unjust systems, cultural decay, sorrow, the sin of the world, and the sin in our own lives. Only by dwelling on that vulnerable place can we learn to profess true hope, not a cheap hope spun from falsehoods, half-truths, or denial, but a hope offered by the very light that darkness cannot overcome. Man, the Lord desires to do something beautiful in your life, but that can only happen in the light. And so take this Advent season to repent. That leads us to our third point, which is that transformation is rooted in God's grace. Repentance and transformation ultimately does not come from trying harder. Doesn't come from a list of like, here are the things I'm gonna do. These are the ways I'm gonna discipline myself better. Those are all excellent things, but at the end of the day, transformation comes through the grace of God. Look again at verse 28. Greetings, favored woman. Pay attention to that. Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Favored woman does not mean that God found Mary particularly special. She wasn't the teacher's pet. Just like us, she was a sinner. The reality is that when the scriptures call someone favored, it is because God graciously decided to choose to show favor to that person. And so this announcement on Mary's life, this invitation into what God is doing is an act of grace. It is not earned. It is given as a gift. And if that's true, then repentance is not a command to work harder. It is an invitation, as Isaiah puts it, to repent and rest. Isn't that interesting? Look at Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. I, this is confusing to me when I first read it, because when I think about repentance, like I'm thinking about getting to work, trying harder, like leveling up in my disciplines. But then when I think about rest, I'm thinking about relaxing. I'm thinking about taking a break, about unwinding while someone else goes to work. So how could repentance and rest go together? Here's how. Repentance calls us to take a step back from ourselves and pay attention to what God is doing in our lives. It's not to go to work to remake oneself, but to see how God desires to remake you, to witness the reality that you are being remained By turning from sin, we turn from the things that promise us rest but deliver only restlessness. And then we turn our souls to God and we surrender to his grace. So ultimately, repentance is like an act of surrender, which is a form of rest. As one theologian put it, to repent is to quit our own efforts to save ourselves to slow down enough to allow God to transform who we are. As the monk J- John Climacus wrote, repentance is the daughter of hope and the refusal to despair. Advent is the season of hope, and repentance is an active way of putting on that hope and refusing to despair. I recognize that that's like a quote within a quote. It's like a inception moment, but... If I tried to change it, I, I would have been plagiarizing. So, Mary sees that she is chosen by God, that she is loved by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Have you seen that you are chosen by God, that you are loved by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? You know, we've talked about King Edwards before, uh, and so just as a reminder, because uh, I think it's such a beautiful example. And, and, and this gets at the reality of like how, how can we come to a place of repentance where we're really willing to surrender ourselves, we're really willing to step into the light and stop hiding behind half-truths. It, we have to see how God has loved us. And that is the reminder of King Edwards. Like in 1936, I think it was, uh, King Edwards falls in love with this twice-divorced woman from New York. So she's like a Yank, she's twice-divorced, and he wants to marry her. But the crown, the people in charge, the the people in England, they were not having it. Like this was not allowed to happen. And so they fully expected him to like walk away from the relationship because he's the king, right? And what does he do? he abdicates his throne to marry a nobody. He leaves it all behind. Can you imagine being loved like that? For a king to lay down his throne, to put aside his crown, to lay it all behind so that he could have a relationship with you? That is what it's like to understand how you've been loved by God, how you've been chosen to be a part of his work of reconciliation. Because it is God, Jesus, who lays down his throne. It is him who steps into human history starting in Mary's womb. The one who should be praised and admired and glorified is rejected and mocked and persecuted and ultimately crucified like a dog. Why? For you and for me. You have been loved like Mary has been loved. You have been invited into his kingdom work like Mary was invited into the kingdom work. And so let's